It's Goober Dubert coming at ya. I want to talk about Igor Stravinsky. <laughs> so, what what do what does a composer, you know, from the turn of the 20th century have to teach a pop musician? A ton, actually. I'm going to focus just on his early life because I just ran, randomly came across this and I felt something. It inspired me. So, hopefully this inspires you too. I'm going to break it down into five lessons, five lessons that Igor Stravinsky has to teach modern day pop writers. All right. So a little bit of background. I'm taking a a online course, great music of the 20th century taught by Dr. Robert Greenberg. It's pretty awesome. So a lot of what I'm going to be saying is coming from that course and I'm recommending it. It's really, really good. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, if not, here's a little taste and something that you can actually apply to your own music, to your own creativity, and just kind of looking at this um, very interesting man's biography and what he turned into. So first of all, Igor Stravinsky is a revolutionary. He was somebody that was incredibly divisive, somebody that you either loved or you hated, mostly hated. Most people hated it. So that's lesson one. Being ahead of the curve hurts. But sometimes that's how you know that you're ahead of the curve. One of the things that I like about this course that Dr. Greenberg talks about is he actually uses contemporary music reviewers, so critics, and what they said at the time that they were exposed to this new music. He even goes back to Beethoven and has some critics that are criticizing Beethoven, who I would say, you know, a good chunk of the classical world considers the goat the greatest of all time. So keep that in mind. On to Stravinsky. Stravinsky, his dad was an opera singer. So he was around music from the jump. That's, a, that's an important thing right there. Exposure to music. Exposure to the stuff. Um, my parents were not musicians, um, but I was exposed to a lot of music growing up, and that was crucial. You know, Luckily, we were listening to a lot of music, and then my grandpa started taking me to a lot of concerts. And by being in the musical community, you can draw a lot, especially from that young age. That's number one. Um, Stravinsky studied some piano, but it wasn't really anything out of the ordinary. So he knew how to play, but it wasn't like, this is what I do. He wasn't some impresario, savant, um, child prodigy. It was only when he ended up in law school that he's like, I want to be a musician, dad. (laughs) I don't really want to do this law thing. And so he's a late bloomer. It takes him until he's 20 to like really start to learn music and composition. So he's at law school. He's teaching himself some of the stuff. He's reading books. He's doing his thing. And he ends up meeting an important friend. That's lesson number two. It's always been about relationships, even back then. Obviously, this is not that long ago. This is a little over 100 years ago. But the point still exists. Internet, pre-internet, even Beethoven's time, Mozart's time. Who you know is very important because... While he's at law school, he meets Rimsky-Korsakov's son. Rimsky-Korsakov was like the leading Russian nationalist. And like, think like, I'm Russian music. Like that super, super Russian sounding stuff. Rimsky-Korsakov was about it. That's what he made. And he was very famous and he was very accomplished. Stravinsky goes to him having, you know, booked a meeting through that 
buddy at law school and plays him some stuff. And Korsakov is like, meh, <laughs> pretty bad. Didn't even really say like, oh, you know, you're going to like, you'll, you'll have a future in this. He was like, basically told him essentially give up. And if you're not going to give up, maybe, you know, pay my students a little bit and they can teach you some, but you're not going to get my time. But he did leave the door open just enough to say, you know, if you, if you work with my students for a while, then maybe I can help you out in the future. But it was one of those kind of like tepid, like, yeah, nice head pat, do your best kind of thing. But that's, that's lesson number three is like, if you get anywhere close to a yes from a mentor like that, you, you have to, you have to really go for it. So from his perspective, he hears, oh, you're pretty good. You're not quite there. Study with some of my, my students and then eventually I'll, I'll teach you. So he goes, okay, bet. He goes and he starts studying with Rimsky-Korsakov's, you know, pupils. And then eventually he does work his way up and he ends up working with Rimsky-Korsakov himself. It takes him a couple of years or three years or something like that, but he's making incredible strides because he's committed to the craft and he recognizes that some things require mentorship. That's another big lesson. Things like orchestration, so that's within this world, requires some mentorship. In my world, I think mixing is something that requires mentorship. I think it's really, really hard to just do it alone. Even, you know, even if it is through the internet or through YouTube videos or whatever like that, you need some level of mentorship, but even better if you have somebody that's going back and forth with you, that's able to show you their process, that's able to say like, this is why this sounds bad. This is why this doesn't work. There are some skills within music that are just too hard and too nuanced to just pick up in a vacuum. Like, yeah, sure. You can learn some stuff, but there is a there are specific sets of skills that require somebody that's gone down the path before you to show you the way. And that's what Rimsky-Korsakov does for Stravinsky. He teaches him how to orchestrate, how to say like, okay, this sounds good on the violins. This sounds good on the timpanis. This sounds good over here. This is the general range you want to work in. Giving him all of the tips and tricks and, and nuance that only, you know, an old school been there, done that composer, orchestrator, arranger could provide. But that doesn't get him far enough. He doesn't become this famous guy until something incredible happens. There is a riot at the Rite of Spring, after the Rite of Spring, because the music is so intense and is so divisive that it actually causes a riot in the streets. But the secret part of that, and that's, that's part of the reason why Stravinsky is like so almost deified because he made such div divisive music, such intense music. It's really good, by the way. It's also really good um, that it caused a riot. It's like that already. You're like, oh, that that's like a legend. He's legendary. But that's where lesson four comes in. You need a team. You need somebody else that is going to let you focus on, you know, making intense compositional choices, intense musical choices they can put it in the right frame. And that's where Serge Diaghilev comes in. He commissioned um, some of the orchestral arrangements early in Stravinsky's career. They made a full-length ballet um, called The Firebird that was you know, very successful. And that was one of the things that made Stravinsky like, kind of elevated. 
he, 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 and that was like kind of the, the, the turning point where Stravinsky really became himself. But in order to become himself, he had to pull in a bunch of different modern influences and combine them with that Russian nationalist music. And in doing so, he ends up creating a good deal of like what modern music ends up sounding like because he goes back. He takes, he takes different musical concepts that have been stodgy and kind of forced into this little box and he starts to destroy that box. He looks to, you know, visual art like cubism and trying to think of, you know, how are there ways that we can put different dimensions into music? He looks to Debussy who makes music that's very floaty, that isn't necessarily tonal, that isn't like it's in a major or a minor key. It is in this familiar sense. Like think of like Mozart, very tonal. It's kind of the anti-Mozart. And WC starts to make music that is more about the journey than the destination. It isn't like, oh, we're building, we're building, we're building, and we arrive. It's more like we're, we're in the process. We never quite arrive. We're always floating. That's more like WC's music. Like Claire de Lune is his most famous thing, but... If you listen to more Debussy, it, it has got this really nice, languid, floaty, dreamlike music. You combine that with Russian nationalism, which is like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and you get this insane, amazing thing that is simultaneously rooted, but lofty, that is dissonant, but paced. And one of the things that... Uh, um, Rimsky-Korsakov did that I think is really interesting is instead of having a melody that you kind of return to and develop, he instead started to do a thing where you just add more stuff. So instead of like necessarily taking this little nugget and you polish it and you turn it into a sculpture by the end, you instead take a nugget and then you add in another, another nugget and then you add in another nugget and then another nugget that kind of contrasts and then you take and remove and you add. It's less about development and it's more about addition and subtraction, which is big in modern music too, like pop music. So combining all of those different types of contemporary art into his, into his work. So that's like the, that's the last, no, second to last. <laughs> um, I guess I got a bonus one lesson where it's like, look at, look at what's around you. Take, take the things that are around you, um, put them into your art, you know, and then combine them with the old, the old and the new at the same time is it gives somebody something to root into. All right. Last one. Let's talk about, uh, combining both the old and the new, and also having that team with Sir Diaghilev. So they did something genius, like straight up marketing genius in order to basically start that riot. That was intentional. They were trying to make a piece of ballet and music combined that was so anti-establishment that they needed to make the audience primed for what they were about to hear and see. So that it would be a spectacle. So then it would hit the press and then everybody would have to come see this thing that created a riot. So what they did is they gave away free and cheap tickets to young revolutionaries and sat them all next to the stodgy old people that, you know, book out the balconies and stuff. 
So instantly you had new and old. You had people wearing berets and people wearing, you know, three-piece suits and top hats sitting right next to each other. And so they started to have this like audience war where it kind of blurred the sense of who is audience and who's performer, who's listening to who, who's doing what, where people are booing and then people are booing the booers and it's going back and forth and they're saying they basically couldn't even hear a lot of the music and the music is hitting this drum. You know, if you listen to some Rite of Spring, there's this boom, doom, doom, like this like intense, almost, uh, almost like movie score sense to it, but it's more tension, it's more, and it never quite releases and all of that combined together, so that Serge Diaghilev's genius of giving away some of the, some of the nice seats to revolutionaries so that they get, they get up in arms with the people that are the establishment. And then the genius of Stravinsky for pulling in, you know, new contemporary art that was not really seen in that way and combining it with tension with never quite releasing, not quite developing this different sense of what music can be and liberating senses of music. So it's not in that little box that made it very satisfying to the revolutionaries and very dissatisfying to the non-revolutionaries. And that brings me to the last lesson. Nothing like drama to get the word out. He's literally a legend because of that destructive modernist work. And that's what brings us into postmodernism. It's destruction. And then where are we now? <laughs> I think we're, you know, we're post-postmodern. We're trying to build it back up, but in a new and interesting way. Like both admiring the building of the box and also admiring the liberation of music from the box. And then figuring out what do we do now? You built it up, you tore it down. Now we're left kind of square one but it's square one after all of this history. Where do we head next? And that's where I think pop music actually fills the gap more than classical. And that's how we end up here. So I think we, we keep those lessons in mind as we make music. So like for me, I want to make music, not all of my music, you know, want to keep some music that's like very listenable and very you know, chill and in the world. But I want to have some music that's ahead of the curve so that, that makes some music that people don't like. Push them. I want to um, build relationships and get to know people and, and, you know, look for mentors, like specifically with, with mixing. I have a few mentors that I really lean on that have really helped me. I need a team. I have a great team and we're building it. It's growing. That's impactful. And I'm trying to pull in other contemporary art into my music. I'm doing my best. I'll get better at it. And then finally, I need drama to get the word out. I don't know what that's going to be. But that has to happen in order to turn all of this from potential energy into kinetic energy. That's the fuse that lights the whole thing. I don't know what that'll be. And I hope it's not like destructive, weird drama. But I hope it's like cathartic, artistic drama. In the way that, you know, this riot, I don't think it hurt anybody. Um... I don't know. <laughs> check my sources, but, uh, you know, I think it's interesting to ha to be, to be part of that, like cultural nexus where you have the new and the old clashing and you're providing a medium for the new and the old to clash, which I ultimately think is a very productive thing because like in vacuums, it's just not that interesting. 
So that's how I apply some of these lessons into what I'm trying to do with my career. And it'd be interesting to see how that um, might affect yours, might affect the way that you conceptualize music and the arc of things. Everything from taking inspiration from paintings to having a hell of a marketer who is your patron or your team member. With that, that's enough 20th century classical music history for me. <laughs> and uh, that might be enough for you too, 15 minutes of it. If you have any questions or anything like that, reach out to me. Pizza has got all the links. And I'm here to talk about stuff. Yeah, talk to you guys later. Bye.